0: Hello, everyone, welcome to our Saturday audio broadcast. As usual, we're here
1: to answer questions people have about their practice or about
0: Buddhism or life issues in general. So, if you have questions, post them anytime in the chat. We'll spend the
1: first 15 minutes in silent meditation. Give people an opportunity to ask questions. Once you've asked your question, then just join us in some quiet meditation time. Clear your mind.
0: Focus your mind on your experiences. Any time you have a question, just post it in the chat. We'll organize and answer them starting at 15 minutes after the hour. OK, we're back, so
2: see we have a few questions. If you have more questions, go ahead, post them in the chat. From now on, we'd ask that the only thing posted in the
1: chat
0: are questions. If you don't have any questions, again, we'll just sit and be mindful together. We do have
3: questions. Often during a formal session, I perceive that the mind is shifting altogether and changes structure at the physical level. When this happens, my vision arises inwards. It is possible that this is part of the purification of the mind, that the mind purifies itself at the physical level when one meditates.
2: The mind doesn't exist at the physical level. You're confusing probably two different things, the physical uh, sensations and the mind that experiences them, or so, or some conception you have of the mind. Mind is just the experience of things. If you're, ex- if you're experiencing sensations that you would describe as shifting, that's still just a description. The reality of them is they are sensations. But you, you, the mind creates these meanings. Oh, this means that something is shifting, or this means there are s- structures changing, etc. So, you, really, you should try to just note the sensation as feeling, feeling. Uh, you will sort of, you will notice physical changes through the cultivation of mindfulness, it's a very pure and simple activity. And as a result, the brain structure most likely undergoes changes. I mean, I don't know how radical the changes are, but one would imagine that there is some discernible Reorganizing of the brain, which may be what you're referring to. A lot of it's not just the brain, throughout the body, there's a release in tension, generally speaking. There's better circulation, that sort of thing.
3: I am in a community that is Catholic, and I am not comfortable with things about Buddhism. But I can't really talk about myself without including Buddhism. Any advice?
2: I don't understand the question. Not comfortable with things, with talking about. Buddhism? Is, that, is this a mistype or something? You're not comfortable with things about Buddhism. Um, am I kind of get the sort of question you're asking. So, without really understanding exactly your situation, I would say that. There's never really a need to mention Buddhism by name when you talk about the things that we teach. It's all just nature, reality, experience, things like mindfulness and so on. But, um, yeah, there's always going to be challenge when you're surrounded or, or, or engaged with people who have views that are different. One thing I know about Catholics that I understand is their views are not all that strong. So it's often more just identification and what we do and so on. So. There may be room to talk about views of suffering and the cause of suffering, cessation of suffering in the path leading to the cessation of suffering without creating contention. But another thing I would say about um, questions about advice are often better redirected to to the practice of mindfulness because the circumstances of your situation are always going to be complex and require clarity of mind to um, sort of untangle and so no one else can give you instructions on what to do, and it's not really helpful anyway. The thing for you to do in your situation is to cultivate mindfulness and see the nature of your experiences, because the, the narrative you describe or the situation you, you describe is conceptual, a community. Well, communities are not things that exist. It's a concept in our minds. Catholic is not something real. Buddhism also is not that something is real, the self and so on. So if you're mindful you can take your life experience by experience and be present for each individual experience. And it provides you with direction on how to resolve what appear to be problems, challenges
3: and so on. Does metta practice lead to piti? I can't distinguish between the two feelings. Maybe they are the same?
2: Metta practice certainly does lead to the arising of rapture, piti. Um, Metta is just the absence of anger, so it's a description for a mind state which has uh, friendliness towards its object. The word metta means friendliness, literally. So, if you have a friendly feeling towards someone, that's metta. If you feel pleasure and excitement, that's piti. Piti is uh, well. Piti actually is the um, being enraptured with something, being. Um, Excited about something or or energized about something. It's um, like getting into a groove. The groove is the piti. So there's many things which can be described as piti when you they become something uh, like a groove that you get into.
3: Currently, you've put the at-home course on hold. Should I continue with your last instruction? I saw in a video you mentioned something about progressing each instruction. Should it be discussed in Discord?
2: Yes, if you're going to pick it up later, your best bet would be to just continue with the last exercise given. If you have some time, you might consider going back to the beginning and working your way up to the last exercise given. That kind of thing is possible as well.
3: Why does our tradition dismiss the importance of jhanas? Can momentary jhana that we practice achieve the eighth jhana, should we forget jhanas altogether?
2: jhana is a word that means meditation it's used to describe different types of wrong meditation when the buddha talked about when he uh, he held his breath he called that a jhana the when as a bodhisatta before he was enlightened he practiced all sorts of useless practices one of which was holding his breath and he called that jhana why because the word jhana means meditation in the Theravada theory, there is a recognition of, we might say, three types of jhana. The first is a jhana, where you focus on a conceptual object. And that leads to a trance state. And it's distinguished as a, as a special kind of jhana because during that period, the five hindrances are absent. The second type of jhana is, the, is called aramanup- lakanupani jhana, which is where you meditate on momentary experience and are able to see the three characteristics. And through seeing the three characteristics, the mind enters into a state that is also free from the five hindrances and very focused but not on a single object focused on reality, on a momentary experience. And the third type of jhana is called lokutra jhana, which is the experience of the path and fruition, cessation of suffering. And that also is distinguished because of the absence of the five hindrances, but of course it's distinguished because of also taking nibbana as an object. So our tradition certainly doesn't dismiss any of those. We don't practice the first type, but we certainly undertake the second type, and the goal is always going to be the third type. As far as what you call the eighth jhana, those are most likely referring to what we call the arupa jhanas, which fall under the, the category of uh, aramanupani jhana. So within aramanupani jhana, Two types. There's uh, the physical and the mental, purely mental, or the physical the, and the unphysical. So the physical is where there's actually a physical object, one of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or feeling. Usually seeing, it's a vision you have in your mind, you visualize some. So creative visualization in your mind, you visualize an object. That leads to four different um, levels of absorption and after that you can go on to what are called the formless jhanas or the the non-physical ones so there's four more of those which are they're they're the things that the bodhisattva practiced before finding the path to cessation of suffering He, he practiced them under other teachers as well and realized that they weren't the path to freedom from suffering Honestly, the word jhana is just such a um, worry word. People are so concerned and upset and fighting about it. Those of you who don't know, this is a word that people fight over and, and causes problems. And part of me would say, yes, just forget about the word jhana entirely and focus on meditation and most especially focus on seeing the nature of reality and becoming free from suffering.
3: Does the timing of the noting of the breath matter? I tend to control the breath as I note instead of noting the rising and falling of the breath.
2: So, you don't actually control the breath. That's the mind's inclination to control. And what you're probably feeling is tension, stress, uh, maybe desire to control, that sort of thing. And you should just note all of those. That's important. That's what we're trying to see. What we're trying to see is how stressful that is. So, if I asked you, um whether that experience is pleasant or stressful, you'd most likely be able to tell me that it's stressful. And that's important to see. You don't have to do anything different. You just have, besides noting that feeling of stress, the disliking, any frustration you might have, and let the mind come to the realization, the understanding that um, trying to control just leads to stress and tension and suffering. That's the non-self aspect of the three characteristics, realizing or taking on the perspective of non-self, not trying to control. And it has to come about through seeing how stressful it is to, con- to try and control. The timing should be when you know. The, the The mantra is a means of reminding yourself. Sati means to remember. So you remind yourself. When, when you know that the stomach is rising, then you, then is that is right after that is when you remind yourself, yes, and this is rising, and that's all it is. So you say rising, it keeps you aware of it, just as rising.
3: While awake and conscious, I experience incredible emotional pain. I want to escape and hide. Can you offer some relief from this?
2: Absolutely, that's one of the very, very core benefits of mindfulness, soka parideva nasa maya. So the four satipatthana are for the purpose of overcoming sorrow, lamentation, despair, emotional pain. Wanting to escape and hide, you'll have to face along with the actual experiences. So the key change that has to come about is a ability, capacity, and tools to face the experiences. The wanting to escape and hide is not helping, is, is exacerbating the problem. It's natural, of course. The desire for relief. So can you offer some relief? The answer is yes. When you understand that trying to find relief is actually making it worse so mindfulness helps you to confront and change your perspective on the experience rather than changing the experience that's the one and only way out of suffering you can't escape it you can't run away from it you can't avoid it you can't seek relief from it you have to seek to change the way you look at it even the, the the problems, even the reactions, the emotions. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. Uh, I guarantee it works. So if you are looking, if you're serious about trying to find relief, then uh, take my advice, please, and read the booklet. Do and and sign up for our at-home meditation course, and we'll meet once a week, and I can go over experiences and if you have the capacity to do at least 30 minutes of walking and 30 minutes of sitting a day half in the morning half in the evening you can free yourself from this suffering of course there are other ways you could of course find another meditation group or or session but this is what we offer and i can guarantee you put in the work and we'll help you through it for free. This isn't a plug for trying to sell you something. We don't make money off of this or anything.
3: How to deal with overthinking?
2: Well, there's not really such a thing as overthinking per se. There is there is the state of mind of being distracted, which I guess you could just call overthinking. But it's important to differentiate the experience of thinking is momentary, so it's not really overthinking. Um, it's a bit more accurate to say your mind is unfocused, and that's what gives rise to incessant and diverse thought so the way to deal with it unsurprisingly is like anything else just to confront it when you're thinking say to yourself thinking thinking when you're restless or distracted say distracted restless and you'll start to catch that there are other aspects of that experience there's liking and disliking there's worry and there's fear and or or there may be worry fear anxiety generally there's always going to be liking and disliking and or disliking involved that's what leads to the distraction in the first place so you'll be able to note all of those as well also hey take up a regular meditation practice cuz a lot of really there's not much in any of the answers here that that is going to solve your problems if you're not undertaking regular mindfulness practice yeah you really have to do the work to change if you want to change yourself there's no easy way no shortcut
3: is it possible to have strong mindfulness and experience strong emotions sometimes it seems that these abate on retreat, but in daily life, showing emotion seems to be necessary, at least socially.
2: Well, maybe in the beginning, you'll start to come to conflict, come to a head, a crossroads, I guess, where you start to incline away from social situations that require you to show emotion, strong emotion, because you start to see the stress and the suffering involved with those emotions, but it's more of a long-term thing. I wouldn't worry about such details. We start at the coarsest of the, the of our mind states and activities. If you can get to the point where you're disinclined to kill or harm others, to steal, or manipulate others to lie to cheat to take drugs and alcohol that's really the the first step and really the the only truly necessary step to get to the point where you're you're pure so as far as having emotions like liking and disliking Uh, Those are things you, you have to take on over the long term. And over time, you'll start to calm down. You won't get angry so easily. You won't get greedy so easily. You'll be more content, more flexible, more understanding, more thoughtful, more kind, more peaceful. And it's more of a long-term practice that over time these things change and they, 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 they become more tranquil. And as a result, as I said, your life starts to change. You'll feel more inclined to a simpler, more peaceful, less exciting lifestyle.
3: Should all thought be abandoned? Is the assumption all discursive thought is unnecessary and ultimately everything is resolved by letting go and there is nothing in need of resolution through reasoning?
2: All thought should be taken as an object during during mindfulness practice. There's nothing in mindfulness practice or the path to freedom from suffering that can be uh, resolved through reasoning. So ultimately the answer to your question is no there is nothing. But you have to understand that that is referring to the only really true and valid goal which is freedom from suffering. In terms of worldly affairs which most pe- most of us have a lot of there is going to be need for some thought and so the answer is sorry. the answer to the first question is uh, that thought should not be abandoned not directly it's uh, you put me in a tricky situation answering this because technically ultimately everything should be quote unquote abandoned in the sense of not clung to so you abandon your clinging. You're, you're clinging to anything, and thought has to be included there. So, t- technically, to some extent, you abandon it. But that doesn't mean repressed, shut off, um, ignored. Because the only way to abandon things is to understand them. To understand that they're not worth clinging to. The only way to understand things is actually to observe them and become more familiar with them which takes facing them which is the function of mindfulness so you actually have to take the thought as an object say to yourself thinking i'm not not precisely as an object but you have to remind yourself about the thought hey that's just thinking so that you're in a position to experience the nature of it it's something that arises and ceases there's nothing nothing meaningful beyond that. It's not something that is meaningful, it's just thought.
3: When noting an experience, like fear, we should also note the physical component, like tense, and also our reaction, disliking. But how to do this, given we can't note three things at the same time? Just note whatever's
2: clearest. Over time it'll get easier, you'll get more proficient at it. But it's not necessary. This isn't a magic it's not a magic trick where you have to catch everything and something great happens. It's not a game or something where you have to shoot every target. It's a quality of mind that we're trying to evoke. The ability to see things as they are, to see things clearly. So the reminder of the experience evokes that state of clarity. So you'll experience a lot of things that you may not necessarily note during practice, but the noting of the something in in the present moment evokes that state. And so this continued moment after moment usage of this mantra of a mantra in any type of meditation whether it's focused on ultimate reality like ours like experience like we do or whether it's focused on a concept like they do in samatha practice it's the the mantra is just a tool that evokes the state of focus and clarity
3: Is it possible to stay mindful during the day when your job involves thinking? I find it impossible to think and be mindful at the same time. Yes, that's
2: one thing that it's impossible to do, but you're not think your your job isn't completely thinking. You have to walk to work or drive or or whatever you have to um eat during the day. you have to take breaks uh even in between thoughts, there will be different physical activities. There'll be emotions, maybe frustration with your work, boredom, tiredness, um, desires, and that many things will arise during your your work. And all of those things can be taken as objects of mindfulness, uh, provided you have the capacity to do that. So what helps, of course, is to do formal practice in the morning, formal practice in the evening, and you'll find that you're able, throughout the day, from time to time, to apply the same principles.
3: How do I deal with traumatic events that keep coming up during meditation? Well, the events
2: themselves don't come up. There are experiences that create the recognition, what would that we call memory. But the experiences are actually happening now. You're not experiencing something that happened in the past. That's important to understand. What you're experiencing is happening now and it's distinct from the thing that you experienced in the past, so much so that over time experiences can can change. So, our memories of things can be distorted, right? This happens. That's because it's something that's happening now. So, it'll be a sound that triggers uh, a chain of uh, visions or sounds or that sort of thing. It'll be a sight or a sound or a thought. And it will trigger a series of experiences. But all of these are just experiences. It will also experience reactions. That's why we call them traumatic. It's traumatic. We know that because. Of the emotions that arise as a result but the emotions are still emotions liking disliking fear worry anxiety all of these are experiences there are aspects of experience that come up moment after moment so all of these things can and should be confronted and understood become familiar with things have power over us because we because of the mystery because of our lack of our ignorance about them our lack of understanding there's no power in experiences they are quite simple and bereft of any um, capacity to control us to manipulate us they are seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling and thinking and they arise and cease but The ignorance about them and the distortion, the delusion that we would have about them gives them that power. It's like if you see a shadow and you get scared thinking it's a monster and then it turns out it's just a tree or something. It's a shadow of a tree or a rock or something. Or you hear a sound and you think it's a ghost and it turns out it's an animal or it's the wind or it's something like that we we make things out to be something that they're not so when you confront them you're able to see what they actually are and i guarantee that these traumatic these things you call traumatic events not to trivialize that they actually aren't um dangerous they aren't they, they have no power in them intrinsically you give them the power by the distortion of perception and you can take that power away if you create clarity of perception which is why we remind ourselves this is seeing this is hearing this is feeling this is liking this is disliking if you haven't read our booklet read the booklet if you're interested you can do the at-home course i keep coming up during meditation well if you are practicing our our tradition there should be some guidance in the booklet but you're welcome to take the at-home course if you're practicing a different type of meditation i'd Suggest maybe you consider trying the meditation technique that we teach. Maybe it will be better at helping you deal with the traumatic events.
3: Do you have any advice for dealing with abusive so called friends? I know neither of these things are important, but we have a lot of fun together and I care for them, but I kind of want to cut them off. Well, you
2: can remind, you can can, uh, reaffirm for yourself that fun is not a good reason to continue doing something. We want to have fun. Fun is something that people in the world look for, but it isn't intrinsically valuable. You don't get anything out of having fun. In fact, It's what keeps you engaged in abusive relationship the sort of thing that keeps you engaged in unhealthy relationships the the pleasure and not well not actually the pleasure the desire for the pleasure that you get out of them so having fun just reinforces that desire so you can reaffirm for yourself that that's okay it's okay to not have fun to to do something that is going to cut me off from fun that particularly caring for someone is similar um because there's nothing special about one specific person the narrative that we tell ourselves this person is special that person is special really have no intrinsic meaning and a much more healthy way to live your life that is foreign for um ordinary society, is to take people as they come, to be completely um, open to whoever you meet, whoever you're in contact with, moment at moment by moment, rather than to care for one specific person. The word care is a bit of a um, misleading term, because it encompasses both the desire for or the inclination towards another person's happiness and also the inclination towards your own deriving pleasure from your um, your association so you like them you're attached to them being attached to someone is one thing and wishing them happiness is another you can do one without the other and you can be free from attachment without sacrificing your desire for their well-being per se. So if you can see the distinction there, you can try to free yourself or, or acknowledge and let go of the attachment to them while while wishing them well and realizing that perhaps the best thing for both of you is some is to to let go of your desire for fun together so it's not so much about telling you you can't have fun it's just about finding uh, putting fun in its place and building relationships built based on something more meaningful like wholesomeness goodness and spiritual development that sort of thing I know neither of these things are important. <laughs> right, so I kind of skipped over that part. You know that they're not important, but hopefully they sort of breaking it down for you to see, well, what does it mean you care for someone? What does it mean to have fun? Both are, the problems with them are that they're rooted in desire. Parts of them are rooted in desire. And that's not a meaningful reason. It's not an excuse. You can You can have fun and care for people in relationships that
3: are more healthy. I've experienced a few years of relatively quiet and mindful living, but lately there has been a desire for more activity. Could this be another cycle of samsara?
2: The cycle of samsara is birth, old age, sickness, and death. But part of that cycle is going to be the desire for more activity. It's what perpetuates the cycle. So, yeah, I mean, all that means is you haven't eradicated desire, which is unsurprising considering how challenging that goal is. But it's a long road. The only thing for you to do now is to take the desire as an object and learn more about it.
3: Sometimes when meditating, I experience what I believe are micro-dreams, images that last a few seconds and the transition is instantaneous. I don't fall asleep. Is this significant or just a lack of sleep?
2: Nothing you experience is significant. Um, The significance of something new is that it impresses upon you the nature of of impermanence so when these things come that are out of the ordinary the only the only significance is that there's something new that they are something different there's something unexpected perhaps but after a while you start to see that they too have nothing special and no meaning so a very important insight apart from the unpredictable nature of experience is that no matter how unpredictable it becomes there's nothing extraordinary or significant about any experience you just not seeing seeing and you'll you'll gradually see that about everything that there isn't anything you could experience that would be significant that's an important and unex- perhaps unexpected part of the path that yeah, part of part of the path to freedom from suffering is the realization that there isn't anything you could experience that's significant. I mean I suppose you could nitpick and say Nibbana kind of stands out as fairly significant. And I guess any of the stages of knowledge, stages of, of understanding could be considered significant. But the actual objects of your experience are not significant, and understanding, the understanding that leads to freedom is going to be seeing that.
3: Would you explain the difference between bhava and jati in the Paticca Samuppada?
2: Well, it's pretty simple. Bhava is the moment of conception. So at, after, at the moment of death, there is death, and then there is the rebirth, the, the linking consciousness that is the first moment in the next life. And that comes about because of the clinging. If if, if a person dies and they still have some sort of clinging in their mind, which you know, it's everyone except for an arahant, Then the next moment is a new bhava. So bhava is existence. That's basically what it means. But the point here is there a new existence. Because of upadana there arises bhava. But bhava is distinct from jati for certain beings, like humans and uh, animals, because there is a period of gestation. So, most likely, referring here to humans, old age, sickness, and death only start after death, right? After baba, there isn't yet aging. You don't age in the womb, you grow. So, from baba to jati, there is growth. There is the growth of the complete physical being. And then at birth, there begins the process of What birth leads to, birth leads to old age, sickness, and death, sorrow, lamentation, and despair.
3: My work requires a lot of analysis and reasoning, thus during meditation I often have to note thinking and distracted. Besides changing careers, what can I do to aid concentration on the present?
2: well the, the the best advice I think is to learn to live with it to be mind or be, be uh, acknowledge the fact that you have a conflict it's it's not a, it's not a harmful conflict it's just kind of unresolvable conflict you can't create harmony out of such disparate activities but you can live with it and it's simply going to impede your progress thinking and distraction aren't going to prevent progress they're just going to make it slower of course slower than someone who did take time to give up their change their career or give up their career or whatever but it's not something you should despair over part of our part of practice in the world. For people who live in the world is going to be involve the acceptance of the making concessions for your situation and being able to understand co- make, making compromises that your practice isn't going to be perfect Try to do some formal practice every day, and it's great if you're actually noting during your work, that's great. Uh, You know, noting during meditation. Well, you can try to note during uh, work as well. That can help to some extent. But there's nothing wrong with noting, thinking, or distracted during meditation. You're learning. You're coming to understand how your mind works. Try and note any frustration you might have, or disliking, or worry, or fear that you might be doing something wrong, or guilt, or that sort of thing. This is to be expected. What you're seeing is a very valuable thing that there's cause and effect. You're realizing that your work is, cha- is, is uh, influencing how your mind works. That's important. Seeing that is an important part of the path of insight. So don't be discouraged. That's a good thing to see. And we're trying to appreciate the suffering that we cause. And slowly, slowly you'll start to see the th- the causes of suffering and you'll change your life over time to suffer less
3: how to deal with denial especially when someone realizes that they were in a denial mode what can meditation teach us about it
2: Well mindfulness eradicates denial because it face, it faces and confronts and recognizes the reality. I mean, we're all kind of in some sort something that could be well, similar, something similar to denial in the sense that we don't realize the reality. I mean, we call what you call denial just means ignorance and misunderstanding, and we all have that until we look inside. Once you start to pay attention and be be more objectively present with experience, the opposite of that will arise. You'll be able to appreciate what is actually happening. You'll see that You'll see when you're lying to yourself, when you are wrong about what's happening, that sort of thing. So, uh, why don't you find out? I would say it can free you from such things, and you can try it yourself and see. Try to read our booklet and maybe take up the at-home course.
3: Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour and asked all the questions in the top tier. Okay.
2: Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Good session, as usual. Everyone is always so quick and uh, thoughtful in posting good questions. Very much appreciated. And I hope you all benefit from this and benefit, more importantly, from your own practice, the work that you put in May you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you, Chris, for your help and whoever else we got in chat. Have a good week, everyone. Sad.
3: Sadhu.